You're listening to Comedy Central. August 7, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. joining us on the show. First, we'll be joined by one of the 72 people running for president of the United States. Senator Michael Bennett is here, everybody. That's gonna be a lot of fun. And then, from the Netflix hit shows Russian Doll and Orange is the New Black, Natasha Leone is joining us, everybody. Also on tonight's show, Math Goes Viral, Texas Cops Do the Worst Old Town Road Remix, and Joe Biden is coming for your guns. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Over the past week, the nation has been divided over a range of topics. Racism, guns, live action Lion King versus animated Lion King, <laughs> and now this. So there's this uh, simple math problem so designed simple. for fourth graders, fourth graders huh? but it's causing quite a division on social media. So some <laughs> Twitter users everything. have gone <laughs> mad trying to figure out this equation. It is eight divided by two, and in parentheses, two plus two. Seems simple enough, right? But it's dividing the internet and our newsroom. I have been told by many that the answer is number one, although I bet you that's disputed because the other half of it, the other half of the people say 16. 16, I got one. It would have been one 100 years ago, but now the answer is 16. Okay, <laughs> the fact that basic math problems are a viral debate just shows you how bad America's education system has become. Because you realize this isn't a perception thing like the dress or Yanni or Laurel, right? <laughs> it's math. So there's a right answer here and a wrong answer. You've got eight divided by two. That's four. And then parentheses, two plus two is four. And then four divided by... <laughs> I don't wanna waste your time. You, everyone knows the answer. You guys know the answer. I know the answer. We all know the answer. <laughs> and I know some people right now are like, who cares, man? Who cares, why do we even need these equations in daily life? We never use this stuff in real life. Well, that's where you're wrong. You need to know this kind of stuff, right? You use it in the real world. Like every time you eat at a restaurant with a bunch of friends, there's always a fight <laughs> when you have to split the bill, but not if you know the math. You see, you'll be like, the bill is 150 and there's eight of us, but in parentheses, you ate all the nachos <laughs> with the extra cheese. So you owe 16 and I owe one. <laughs> it works. It works. All right, let's move on from division to multiplication. Because you know how it feels like uh, traffic has gotten a lot worse over the past few years? Well, now we know who to blame. Uber and Lyft are admitting what cities have been saying about them for years. They make traffic a lot worse. A study commissioned by both companies looked at six major cities. Uber and Lyft accounted for more than 10% of what they call vehicle miles in some areas, and one-third of those miles came without a passenger. Now, one study in San Francisco found Uber and Lyft may have caused traffic to double. That's double during a two-year period. That's right, in some cities, there are so many Uber and Lyft cars on the road now that it's caused traffic to double. Partly because so many cars drive around empty. 
and partly because they go around the block four times even though I put in the exact address. <laughs> Why is it so hard to find an address? FedEx can find my address. Domino's can find my address. My illegitimate child found my address twice <laughs> because he's persistent like his father, whoever that may be, but somehow Uber always gets lost. And honestly, I don't know how we're gonna fix this thing, right? Because this traffic is becoming a problem, right? But at the same time, we all use these Ubers to get places. But because of Uber, there's extra traffic, so we can't actually get places. Then we're gonna be late for work, which means we all get fired, which means we have to get a job as an Uber driver, making the traffic even worse. It never ends. Now, Uber has said that to try and alleviate traffic, they invented Uber Pool, right? So we all join together. And now they've said that they're going a step further. They've got another new service for nearby destinations called Uber Stride. See, what you do is you put the address into your phone and then you just walk there, you lazy piece of shit. <laughs> you just walk. We don't need Ubers all the time. We can just walk. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, you can rate yourself. You can be like, two stars, I talk too much. <laughs> all right, moving on. Police in America are learning every day that some of the practices they consider normal are not exactly great uh, when dealing with other human beings. And this story out of Texas is just the latest example. Next tonight, outrage over a pair of widely viewed photos of mounted police officers leading a man down the street with a rope after arresting him in Galveston, Texas. Authorities say a police vehicle was not available at the time. Galveston's African-American police chief apologized to Neely and called the incident an unnecessary embarrassment, adding this is a trained technique and best practice in some scenarios, but that the officer showed poor judgment in this instance. Poor judgment? Oh, and poor judgment is an understatement. If you're doing something in 2019 that could also be a scene from Django Unchained, you should probably think again. <laughs> and also, why are American police still on horseback? What is this, 1865, what is this? Cause you realize there's no good way to arrest someone when you're riding a horse, right? Whether you're leading him by the rope or you throw him over the back, it's always going to look racist. It's actually the least complicated equation. Cops plus black person plus multiplied by a horse equals racism, that's all it is. <laughs> Like, it's, it's always gonna be that. <laughs> if you absolutely have to arrest someone with a horse and you don't want it to be racist, the only way you can do that is to put the person behind you and just have them hold you romantically. <laughs> that should be best practice. It's like, you have the right to remain silent. No, you have the right to remain silent. <laughs> All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. <laughs> With America still reeling from the double mass shootings over the weekend, President Trump today met with survivors and first responders in both cities still recovering from the tragedies, Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. But before he left, the president answered questions about how he plans to deal with guns and the threats of white supremacy in the United States. I think there's a great appetite to do something with regard to making sure that mentally unstable, seriously ill people aren't carrying guns. Mr. President, don't how concerned are you about the rise in white supremacy? And what do you want to do about it? I am concerned about the rise of any group of hate. I don't like it. Any group of hate, I am, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's any other kind of supremacy, I am very concerned about it, and I'll do something about it. Any... Other kind of supremacy? <laughs> what other kind of supremacy is Trump concerned about? 
That's right, we're under threat from white supremacy and the born supremacy. Very confusing plot. So confusing. You know, you know what I find interesting about Donald Trump? I don't think he's ever worn a T-shirt, but also... <laughs> have you noticed how he seems to go out of his way not to single out white supremacists? He really goes out of his way. After Charlottesville, he was like, well, technically, everyone was being violent. It wasn't just them. And now he's saying he's against white supremacy and other supremacies, even though the FBI specifically warned Americans about white supremacy. He just doesn't want to single them out, which is not very comforting, you know? It's like if your girlfriend asked, baby, do you love me? And your response was, yeah, I, 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 love, I love everyone. I love you. I love, <laughs> I love my mom. I love, I love, love people. I love our mailman. I, 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 it's not gonna make you feel good. So from what we've seen so far, it doesn't look like Trump is willing to take the lead in pushing for gun regulation or combating white supremacy, which is why the Democratic presidential candidates are using this opportunity to show that they can lead. So let's catch up on everything Dem-related in another installment of World War D. In the days following some of America's deadliest mass shootings, the Democrats have all come out saying why they think they would each be the best leader to stop gun violence. But even though they disagree on who it should be, the one thing they can all agree on is that there's one person who definitely shouldn't be in the White House. It is very clear that this kind of hate is being legitimized from on high. Donald Trump is responsible for this. He's responsible because he is stoking uh, fears and hatred and bigotry. He has based his entire political career on fanning the flames of bigotry and division and hate. What he has got to understand is that when you have language that is racist, there are mentally unstable people in this country who see that as a sign to do ter terrible, terrible things. We're living through a rare moment in this nation's history where our president has more in common with George Wallace than he does with George Washington. Whoa, whoa, that's not fair. Donald Trump has lots in common with George Washington. They both had major beefs with the UK. Uh, they both buy their wigs from the same place. Uh, Washington chopped down a cherry tree. I'm pretty sure Trump also hates fruits. Lots of similarities. But beyond blaming Trump, the Democrats have released a series of proposals for how they would stop guns from getting into the hands of white supremacists or people who are just deranged. And many of their proposals are similar. You know, things like universal background checks, closing loopholes, and replacing bullets with little flags that say, bang. <laughs> but because he's the front runner, all eyes have been on Joe Biden. And it didn't get off to a great start because while people were still mocking Trump for consoling victims in Toledo instead of Dayton, Joe Biden came out and won up Trump by messing up both cities, offering his sympathies to Houston and Michigan. Yeah. I feel like at this rate, the debates are just gonna end up with both men wandering out in their bathrobes, totally confused. <laughs> just be like, are you my grandson? I thought you were my grandson. <laughs> Sir, this was about tax cuts. So, after that gaffe, Biden had to make amends, which is why he went a step further than just background checks, and in an interview with Anderson Cooper, proposed this. Joe Biden has come out for a very large federal gun buyback program and an assault weapons ban. To gun owners out there who say, well, a Biden administration means they're gonna come for my guns. Bingo, you're right if you have an assault weapon. 
The fact of the matter is they should be illegal, period. Damn, Joe Biden. Whoa. That's a bold statement. Normally Democrats, when they ask the question, they're like, oh, it's not a ban and we're not gonna come for the guns and we're not gonna ban it. But Biden's like, bingo, I'll see your ass at midnight. <laughs> so the Democrats are coming after Trump. They're also planning to come after guns. And you can tell they're fired up about these issues because they are cussing like all the kids have gone to bed. And the Republicans need to, quite frankly, get their shit together and stop pandering to the NRA because people are getting killed. Senator Cory Booker, quote, in such a bullshit soup of ineffective words, this is so weak. Mitch McConnell needs to get off his ass and do something. People are getting killed in the streets in America and nobody's acting, nobody. Is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know that he's been saying? He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the Damn! <laughs> Who are these Democrats, huh? I hope these guys are raising a lot of campaign funds because they owe a lot of money to this wager. <laughs> I mean, we got the F-bombs, we got shits, asses, even a bullshit soup from Cory Booker. <laughs> And by the way, Corey, there's already a name for bullshit soup. It's called gazpacho. <laughs> yeah, how are you gonna call yourself a soup if you're not even warm? That's the main soup thing. Gazpacho isn't a soup, it's a tomato smoothie. That's what it is. <laughs> if you wanna eat tomatoes, fine. But you gotta chew like the rest of us. That soup is bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. The point is, I can see why these Democrats are frustrated. I can see why they're cursing. Because thanks to mass shootings, Americans are living in a state of terror and lawmakers don't seem to want to get anything done. So clearly, America has long overdue a serious conversation about guns. And when that's done, I'm coming for you, gazpacho. See your ass at midnight. <laughs> we'll be right back. Daily Show. My guest tonight is a Democrat from Colorado who serves in the Senate and is running for President of the United States. Please welcome Senator Michael Bennett. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is uh, wonderful to have you here because you're one of my favorite people to watch on the debate for two reasons. One, you sound like Mr. Mackey to me. And two, your policies are progressive and, like, you think about kids, you, you, you have this idea of America that is, that is really attractive to many people. And that's what I wanted to start the conversation in and around. A lot of people may know you as someone who's on the edge of a debate stage. You know? A lot of people do know. Right. Yeah. They do, but... Right, you but when it comes to policy and in the Senate and in running and writing laws for this country, many people regard you as a senatorial rock star. Why do you think that is? Maybe because the bar is as low as it is. In the <laughs> I, 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 no. I don't think that's true. I don't think I, that's, I true. Don't that's true. No, I really I'd, li I, I'd like to not think that's the reason. Uh, it's because I believe fundamentally all of us have been sent there to make progress. We right. have to make progress. As my friend Lamar Alexander, who's a Republican, says, if you just want to stick to your opinion, you might as well stay home and be on the radio. There's right. no reason to come 
to the national legislature to do the work. And I've, and, and I have been able to do some things. You know, we rewrote the Elementary and Secondary School Act. Nobody knows about that, but we got rid of No Child Left Behind. I've written bills that have, that have dramatically changed the way the FDA approves drugs. And right. 140 new drugs have been approved as a result. And in 2013, with John McCain and some others, I wrote the immigration bill that Donald Trump seems to have completely forgotten that passed the Senate with 68 votes. And if we could just get back to that work, we could address the problem instead of trying to build an ineffective medieval wall. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the writing of laws. These laws that you spoke about are genuinely monumental moments in American history. You know, reforming immigration is a giant thing. Changing education has so many, you know, speed bumps in the way. How do you begin to write laws with people who are on the other side of the aisle? Because there are many Republicans who go, Senator Bennett is a phenomenal person to work with and he knows how to write great laws. What do you think the secret is then? I think the secret is starting with the people at home and trying to align their priorities to the priorities in Washington and reminding people in Washington that those are the priorities, not the stuff on the cable television at night. You know, the Ameri our approval rating in the Senate, I take no pleasure, is 9%. And I used to walk through the airport in Denver when I got off the airplane wanting a paper bag over my head <laughs> because I was so embarrassed by the 9% approval rating that we had. Right. And wondering why in the world anybody would want to work in a place with a 9% approval rating. And there's an answer to that, which is if you think you've been sent there to dismantle the federal government, as the Freedom Caucus and others have, that 9% approval rating suits you. If you actually want to do stuff for the American people, this exercise in self-government, which is our exercise in self-government, not the politicians, it's the people in this audience, has to work. And so you look at something like that immigration bill where eight of us sat in a room for seven months uh, uh, responding to each other's political needs, mm -hmm. and it worked. And if we just did the work the way those eight people did the work, we'd have a 75% approval rating, not a 9% approval rating, but more important than that, we'd be governing this country again, which is what we have to find a way to do. One of, one of your breakthrough moments in this run, undoubtedly, was a tweet that you recently sent out uh, that made waves, and we'll, we'll, we'll pull it up here. In the tweet, you say, if you elect me president, I promise you won't have to think about me for two weeks at a time. <laughs> I'll do my job watching out for North Korea and ending this trade war so you can go back to raising your kids and live your lives. Yeah. Yeah. That, is a, that is a really interesting pitch because basically what you're saying is vote for me because I'll be boring and get the job done. Yeah, and, and it is a job. It's the most important job in the world and we've got a reality TV star in the job. And he's, and that's no good, but he's happy to play that part every right. single day. And I think the American people would feel liberated if they could get up in the morning not wondering who the President of the United States was attacking by his tweets, not wondering who the President of the United States was trying to divide, but knowing that we had a President who was trying to unite our country and who actually was doing his job, which is important. If, if everything went your way, and you found yourself in the White House, you would now have what many consider the unenviable task of working with the Senate that may or may not be 
still including Mitch McConnell right. as, as running the show. Now, you, you work way, with him. You know why he can't do any of the gun stuff? It's because he's so busy trying to keep Russia from attacking our democracy. <laughs> I think that's, that's sarcasm. I think that's Sorry. sarcasm. Yeah. Um, but but, but it, it's no secret. Mitch McConnell has been extremely effective right. in yep. blocking yeah. many laws from yeah. being passed. Yeah. The next president, who could be a Democrat, would still maybe have to work with Mitch McConnell if you look at the Senate the way it is now. How would you begin that? Because he's still going to be there McConnell-blocking things. So... <laughs> What would your plan be? By the way, I, I had to sign a release for my daughter, who's 15, to be here tonight. And, and now I know why. But it was the swearing Democrats. Yeah, too, it was actually the swearing could, Democrats, yeah. not me. Uh, look, here's... I, I, I want to be very clear about this, and everybody needs to understand this. We were broken before Donald Trump arrived. That's one of the reasons he was sent there. And... They didn't let Barack Obama get anything done in the legislature, in Congress, for the last six years he was there. We have to fix that problem. And I would never say that we should be as malevolent or as cynical as Mitch McConnell is. He is the most malevolent and cynical person in Washington. But we do need to be as strategic as he is. And we have not been as strategic as, he's, as he has been over the last 10 years. So I think we've got to take this agenda to the country. You've got to go to places where you, the president, may never win 30% of the vote mm-hmm. or, 20, or 25% of the vote, but you're there to say, this is why we got to get universal health care done. Right. This is why we got to get background checks done. This is why we got to deal with climate. And I think that will make a difference. We got to make some reforms, too. You know, I mean, ideally, we'd end political gerrymandering in this country. Right. I, I, ideally, we'd do something to overcome Citizens United. And I've had a bill for 10 years, which for a long time I couldn't get anybody to support, but it, it said that if you've had the privilege of serving as a member of the House and serving as a member of the Senate, you should accept a lifetime ban on ever becoming a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. Wow. And over half the people that leave the Congress and don't retire become lobbyists in Washington, D.C. It sends a terrible message, which creates cynicism, which feeds into the folks that don't want to get anything done. Washington will not fix itself. Mitch McConnell will not fix himself. It is something that the country is going to have to come together in a unified way to overcome a broken Washington. And if that sounds hard to do, it's no harder than the work that generations of other Americans have done to try to perfect the democracy that we're living in. As you said the other day, it's totally true. What we are about is trying, and that's what we have to keep doing. We we have no right to expect it will be easy. It's never been easy to make this country more democratic, more fair, more free. It's always been hard, and our job is going to be hard, but it's going to involve every single one of us. You know, it's the opposite of a president who says, I alone can fix it. Let me ask you this. In the debates, there was definitely a moment where the crowd resonated with the message that you had, and that was... I think it was twofold. One part of it was was in and around what you just said now, coming together and fighting towards something as opposed to against each other in trying to get somewhere. But what was really interesting and important was you spoke about how you didn't want the Democrats to use similar tactics to Donald Trump in 
overpromising and underdelivering. You, you know, you had more practical measures that you were pitching on, on, on that stage. For instance, you said with healthcare, you, you still think there should be a private option. You said with healthcare, it should be fixed, but the, the, there's work that Democrats could do to give people a choice. It seems like you are more pragmatic. Some people have labeled you as more centrist, but you've said that this is more about promising things that are deliverable. Is that what you think voters want? versus what Donald Trump did and said, ban all Muslims, build a wall, <laughs> bomb the shit out of them, just make it as big as possible. Why do you think that would sell he, to so many voters? He also was gonna give us really cheap universal health care that you were really gonna like, but he hasn't done that either. <laughs> uh, look, I am pragmatic in the sense that I believe that everyone's job is to make progress. And I also believe, and the older I get, I believe this even more, I don't think I have a monopoly on wisdom. I think that people in a republic like this have, are entitled to have disagreements. And I'm not entitled to believe that everybody's going to agree with my point of view, which means that I have to contend with people all the time that don't see the world the way that I do. Right. And it's out of that disagreement that we can burnish more imaginative and more durable solutions than, than if we came up on the ideas on our own. I mean, that's not the point of being an American. The point of being an American is we're working together to make more exciting and imaginative outcomes. The worst decisions I make in my, I don't know about you, but the worst ones I make are when I'm sitting alone in my house and not consulting anybody. That's about, when the ice cream happens, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I Just know exactly to begin what, with. I Just know exactly what with. you're talking about, yeah. And, and that's, and instead, if I'm with people who say, maybe you shouldn't eat another gallon of ice cream, uh -huh. then I'm less likely to do it. Definitely. Um, and that's what our democracy should really be like as well. And, and that sh it shouldn't be shameful that we have different ideas. What's shameful is that we don't make progress on these ideas. I don't view that as being moderate. I view that as, as being pragmatic and understanding that the kids that I used to work for when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, you know, a large urban district in this country, have no time for this ideological battle that we're having. They can't fix their own schools. They can't fix our immigration problem. They can't deliver universal health care. They're too busy doing their work to study and get to a position where they can play a role in the democracy. They're counting on us to figure out how to resolve these disagreements and start, begin to solve these problems for the American people. We have perfected the craft in our national politics of getting nothing done and blaming the other side. We are excellent at that. We don't need another 10 years of that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Senator Michael Bennett, everybody. We'll be right back. Thank you very much. My guest tonight is an Emmy-nominated actor, writer, and director who co-created and stars in the critically acclaimed Netflix series, Russian Doll. Please welcome Natasha Lyonne. Welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you, sir. Let me start with the most important thing. Congratulations, not just on the 13 nominations for the show, but the three that you have received personally. Thank 13 you. Emmy nominations. <laughs> that is, uh... 
That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's good also because it's, it's a number I like. It's you know, if you're not going to get 666, that's 666, you want 13. You want the 13? Yeah. It feels like, I mean, like, it's a show about bad luck that is, a, like, turning into good luck for you. I yeah. mean, the show Russian Doll, you know, swept everybody. I remember everyone saying to me, they're like, have you watched Russian Doll? You gotta watch Russian Doll. And then everyone would spoil it for me by telling me to watch it, but they're not gonna spoil it. They'd be like, it's yeah. about this person, and she dies every day. But I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but she dies every day. <laughs> and she comes back every day. Like, the, the show really connects with people, even though it's dark, and then sometimes it's funny, and then sometimes it's really dramatic and sad. Why do you think people love the show this much? Well, first of all, I mean, it's overwhelming because, you know, you work so hard and uh, just the idea that you're like so meticulously right. constructing and writing it and trying to Easter egg it everywhere. The idea that people are seeing that is huge. It's a revolutionary as a, an, a, a creator. You know, it feels uh, it's a very warm, nice thing. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's just we're in a crazy time, you know, in this country. And uh I think that, you know, we really tried to tell the truth the best way we could and um, to talk about big ideas right, and right, sort right. of uh, the heart of the matter. And so I think, um, uh, you know, maybe that that sort of accounts for some of the response to it is that we're hungry for that kind of storytelling in this moment. It is interesting how, like, your character travels through this journey where, you know, in the first episode, I remember watching, and she's very just like, yeah, yeah. whatever's happening is yeah, happening. Yeah, I call that my pesci, yeah. my pesci Is that your pesci yeah. move? Yeah, yeah, it's very like, you know? Yeah. And, then, and then it becomes like, you know, at first it's frustration, and then it becomes like a deeper search, search for meaning. Yeah. You know, it seems like what we all have as human beings. Yeah. I feel like that's what I've watched you do as a fan of yours in life. Ah, oh, thanks. No, so. genuinely, because I, I remember, like, I fell in love with your acting in American Pie. That's when I first fell in yeah. love with you. Yeah, that was my big deep dive. <laughs> right. No, really. Your humor, your acting, the, just like the way you, you, you come across on camera. And what's changed in your roles is you still have that humor, you still have that charisma, but like everything that you touch seems to have a deeper meaning. You know, you have that with Russian Doll and Orange is the New Black talks about such big ideas, addiction, you know, belonging, you know, like the way we treat people who are in prison, being a woman. You know, do you feel your life translating into your work or do you think your work is affecting your life? Uh, first of all, I'm very flattered and humbled by that question. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I do think that there's, I've always had a sort of philosophical leaning. It's a reason I deeply admire Genji's work and right. the opportunity to do Orange is the New Black and. Uh, getting to direct there as well. I mean, it's been a really uh, sort of all the things that uh, I care about, but they sort of, I guess I'm just getting older. Like the morning of uh, the, uh, those Emmy nominations came in and I was reading a book to try to distract myself. And as soon as like a text message came through with the good news, I felt my eyes go a little fuzzy, like my body relaxed and said, get some bifocals, take it easy, kid. <laughs> you know, the war is over. Just uh, lean into aging and, you know, go with brains, good luck. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean... don't know, you dismiss it. I think everybody gets older, but not everybody gets wiser. And that's what you've done. The show is amazing. Your acting is amazing. I'm excited to see what else you're gonna create. Thank you so much Thank for being so on the show. Thank you so much. Wonderful having you. Orange is the new black. Russian Doll are available on Netflix right now. Natasha Leone, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. 
follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.